Well, I told you last week that after the events of, of that week, the police shootings and then the, the uh, attack upon police that resulted or came from that, that I had uh, been wondering if I should delay the beginning of the Hebrew series and, and uh, talk about that. The problem was I didn't have anything to say. Um, and especially I didn't have any, anything to say that wasn't my own opinion. And it's not my call to stand up here and give you my opinion of things. I have to preach the word. You can ask my opinion elsewhere. I'll give it to you. But when I stand up to preach, I have to preach the word. Um, and it wasn't until this week, later in the week, that um, a passage came to mind that I think is certainly fitting and appropriate for the things that have happened. Uh, the events have not stopped. Uh, not only do we have the, the shooting in uh, Louisiana, the one in Minnesota, then the, the Dallas attack. Um, we've had others since then. We've had the shootings this morning in Baton Rouge. We've had um, <laughs> a, a terrorist take a, a, a large truck and, and plow through a crowd of people celebrating a national holiday in France. Uh, we've had a uh, civil war briefly uh, in Turkey and others. Things have gone on as well. The events don't end. Thankfully, God's word remains true and sure. So. Uh, we'll turn to that this morning, and hopefully the things uh, from that will be helpful for you and for me this morning. Um, when I get there, the sermon's going to have a fairly lengthy introduction, so bear with me through that. But the, the text that came to mind is one that I've shared with you often, but never uh, expounded before. And so I thought I'd do that briefly uh, here this morning and see if it applies uh, to certain things that have been going on. It's 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Let me read these for us. As always, this is God's very word. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it? That overcomes the world, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. As we turn to this word, let's uh, first go before the Lord in prayer. Let me pray for us. Our great and glorious God and Father, we come before your word now and again ask your blessing here upon us this morning. As always, we ask that you would fulfill your very own promise about your word, that when it goes out, it does not return to you empty, that instead it goes out and accomplishes everything that you purpose for it, that it goes out and is successful in the things for which you send it. And so we ask for ourselves that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning so that our eyes might be opened and our ears opened to see and hear all that you would have us learn from your word. And so doing, making it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk in the light rather than in darkness. Father, all this we ask as always in the precious, wonderful, and holy name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. A story here, a true story. Um, police or law enforcement killing citizens. 
And citizens retaliating against police or law enforcement is nothing new. There's a story that comes down to us through the years of history, many, many, many years. It's a true story. It really happened. It's a story, though, that we don't have many details of, and maybe that's to our advantage. And it's related very much to the events that have been happening here and even around the world. It happened in a, in a country, in a nation, in many ways very much like ours. The rulers of that country were seen by some to be incredibly enlightened. They brought incredible progress. They brought culture. They brought advancement in civilization in all sorts of areas of life. In general, the rulers of that country were liked and supported by the elites. Some of them believers, some just taking advantage of and maintaining positions of privilege and power in that government. In general, though, this leadership was very much disliked by the common people. The country was also divided regionally, parts where there was great support for the government and parts where there was great opposition. Those in the capital city and in the larger cities were much more supportive of the government than those in the countryside. And isn't that very much like our country today? We talk about flyover country in the U.S., those places that people fly over to get from one big city to another. And people who live in flyover country have a very different attitude about things than people who live in the urban areas, the big cities. Now these common people that were generally opposed to the government were generally seen as as dangerous. And in some cases they really were dangerous people. There was conflict between the two from time to time. Some saw the rulers as very cruelly suppressing uh, these common people, whether through imprisonment or sometimes open conflict where people on both sides were killed and died. Some supported the rulers in this. These are troublemakers. They need to be punished. They need to be put down. And whatever needs to be done needs to be done to stop this opposition from arising. Conflicts were not unusual between the people and between the law enforcement authorities. Again, some of the details of the story are not passed down to us, but we know that this conflict existed, and in some regions, the people were considered even like second-class citizens, lesser people, and more prone to cause trouble and... and, uh, wreak havoc. What we know happened is that there was a point in time, we don't know when it was, uh, what time of year it was, we just know it happened, that some people from this other part of the country, opposed to the powers that be, traveled to the capital city. We don't know how many, again, we don't know when. What we do know is that while they were there, this is a religious country, it's a, it's a very religious country, And while there, they took it upon themselves to engage in the worship of that people. Again, we don't know how it happened. We don't know 
exactly the details, but what we do know is that somehow, whether it was before they went to worship, maybe they were on their way, maybe it was while they were worshiping, maybe it was on their way out, somehow some sort of conflict arose between this group of people, these travelers from out of town, these places from that lousy place where second-class people will come from. Some conflict arose between them and law enforcement who looked upon them with some suspicion, these out-of-towners. We've got to keep a close eye on them. We don't know who started it. We don't know how it happened. We don't know the details of the conflict. But what we do know is that some of those visitors from out of town were killed by law enforcement. Again, not unlike some of our recent events. And not unlike recent events here, citizens reacted differently to what happened. We don't have, again, a lot of details, but we know from other sources and from uh, knowledge of this society that there were some who supported what Law enforcement did. They were right. These people are wrong. And they deserved what they got. They deserved death. They're known troublemakers from a known place where troublemakers live. They're probably at fault. They deserved to die. If they were killed, then they must have deserved it. But to others, there were, they looked at it and said, this is just another example of the, the wickedness of this government that we have, taking advantage of and killing innocent people who are just here to worship, just here going to a religious facility. What could they have possibly been doing to deserve to be killed? Sympathized with them. And the more zealous of those folks, the more frustrated and angry of that group of folks would have seen the killings of these people as just another justification for rising up and causing trouble, even to the point of killing and assassinating not just law enforcement people, but the ruling classes and the elites as well. Again, this really happened in history years and years and years and years ago. These people really existed. The events really happened. And people really did respond to them in different ways. And it sounds an awful lot like what we've seen in Louisiana and in Minnesota and in Dallas and other places around our country, whether it's an Alton Sterling or a Philando Castile or Micah Johnson standing on a parking lot and targeting white police officers. It sounds very familiar to us. We also are divided. There's anger on both sides. There's revenge. No, the police were justified. No, these were innocent people. Police are murderers. No, these are evil, wicked rebels against society and against authority. Who's right? Who is wrong? What do we do about it? What do we say about it? It's amazing that literally over centuries, (laughs) these things can happen and nothing Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Because people are the same. Because depravity is the same. Sin is sin. And sinful, depraved people are sinful, depraved people. But 
it raises a question for us as believers. How do we respond? Whose side are we on? We might even ask a question like Pilate asked at Jesus' trial. Facts and statistics and claims are presented to us by both sides of the, the issue and claims made that we're right and they're wrong. You can almost look at this array of information and go, well, where is truth? What is truth in all the midst of this? How do we respond? What do we do? Anybody know the historical incident I'm talking about? Anybody have any idea what it is? Pilate had a role in it. The great questioner was a player in that story. We have the story. The details we do have are in Luke 13. (coughs) As always, a group of people is around Jesus. And they ask him about an event that happened in Jerusalem. Pilate, they told Jesus, had killed some Galileans somewhere at or near the temple grounds, mingling, they said, their blood with their sacrifice. We don't really know what that means. It could be just a metaphor for killing them while they were there to worship. Or it might mean they were actually killed while they were making their sacrifice. That's a little hard to believe because those soldiers were not allowed in that part of the temple. Nevertheless, they were killed. Galileans in Jerusalem there to worship God and offer sacrifice. And the people want to ask Jesus. And they do ask Jesus. Did they deserve it? Did they deserve to die? What about these people? How do you judge this? We know from other parts of of the New Testament, we know from other sources, that it was very common in this society at this time for Jews to interpret a death like this as being caused or the result of or punishment for sin. To look at these Galileans and say they deserved it, they were sinners. So these soldiers are just the tool of God punishing their sin. But it's also possible from the context, as you read into chapter 13 from chapter 12, Jesus telling the people to learn how to judge rightly. You don't need to go to a magistrate, judge rightly. And some people pointing to the magistrate and saying, well, of course we don't want to go to the magistrate. Did you see what he did? Did you see what that magistrate did to those innocent Galileans? So it's very easy to see, even in the context of that story, that there's different ways people are coming at Jesus with this instance. How is he going to respond? How does Jesus judge the situation? Is he on the side of the Romans? On the side of Pilate? On the side of law enforcement? Or is he on the side of his fellow Galileans? a place from which nothing good can come. Lousy, stinking Galileans. Whose side is he on? Neither. (laughs) Jesus doesn't pick a side. He's on a different side. He is, if you will, on his own side. 
or maybe more precisely, on God's side. This is Jesus' reaction in Luke 13, verses 2 and 3. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think they were killed because they were sinners? No, I tell you. (laughs) But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. (laughs) What kind of response is that? That's not very pastoral. It's not very comforting. What kind of response is that? Repent, or you also are going to die. Now think about that response in light of all the uproar, all the news, all the reporting, all the opinions expressed in the last couple weeks about the events in our country. And all the millions of words that have been spilled in the aftermath of the killings of these civilians, the conflict between the police and the African-American black community, how many of those words did you hear that were God's words? Precious few, if any. In print, on the radio, on TV news, commentators, Facebook, social media. How many times did you see a person address what was going on by turning to God's word? I saw a couple, and I am very humbled to say one of those was a member of this congregation. How many of us instead got caught up in that vitriolic debate, bandying back and forth various statistics about police killings or lack thereof or who they kill or what they do and what percentage to what group of people when and how often. How many of us got caught up in taking sides with one party or the other? How many of us jumped to conclusions one way or another? How many of us did what Jesus did (laughs) and used the incident to call people to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. There's an interesting conflict going on in the world and in our country. Not the one I usually talk about between the righteous and the wicked. That one is ongoing until Christ returns. But there's another conflict, and it's an interesting conflict because it's being fought among the wicked. It's a fight for power and for influence, for control, for possessions, for money. And I am convinced that one of Satan's great devices is to get believers caught up in this conflict. Because if he can do that, then we'll be distracted from the real battle between the righteous and the wicked. And we'll abandon the battlefield we should be fighting in fighting that one instead. We're distracted. And Satan gains a little bit of an upper hand. We shouldn't get distracted. Jesus did not get distracted. Refused to get sucked into a question 
that would have distracted him from his mission to seek and save the lost, calling them to repentance and faith, leading them into his kingdom, and taking them out of the kingdoms of this world. The Roman rulers were not Jesus' friends. The Jewish priests, the religious leaders, were not Jesus' friends. But on the other hand, the Jewish zealots who opposed Roman rule were not Jesus' friends either. Similarly for us, I got news for you (laughs) and for me. This is a realization we all, I think, need to take to heart. Republicans are not your friends, Christians. Democrats are not your friends. Libertarians are not your friends. The Greens or the Conservatives or anyone else are not your friends. In reality, they hate you. And all they want to do is use you. We're a tool that they use to consolidate their own power or to obtain power. Side with us, they call. But in reality, they hate us. Look at how they really, truly treat us. How many promises have been made by the right wing to Christians about different issues? And if you follow politics at all, you know that time after time after time after time, they've turned their backs on us. Democrats have done the same. Hey, come to us, Christians. We'll do this, this, and this for you. And time and time again, they change. You're just a tool. We are just a tool. Conservatives and capitalists like our emphasis on individual responsibility, but they hate our teaching against greed and the lust for power and the obligation to help our neighbor. Liberals and socialists, they love us for our teaching about loving our neighbor and helping our community but they hate us for any criticism of that neighbor's sin or any judgment of their behavior. Libertarians love our emphasis on personal freedom and respect for private property, but they hate our teaching on moral and ethical responsibility. Christians, we have no friends. Don't fool yourselves. We have no friends in the political and social classes of those who wield and seek to wield power in our society. They are not our friends, but you have a better friend. As the old song says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. So if this is true, if I'm right, how do we respond to what's going on around us? How do we judge? How do we react? How do we talk to people? How do we interact with them? Well, I think like Jesus, we have to turn people to turn people's attention to eternal and to spiritual matters. And I think this is where the introduction ends and I get into the, the, the what little me that we have here before us for the sake of time. I think first John five, four and five is so helpful for us. Because it turns our attention to what the real conflict is and where the real victory is. The victory that comes now, but also finally at the end of that conflict and how that victory comes about. So let's look at 1 John 5, 4 and 5, and then I have some thoughts about it to conclude.
First John is a wonderful letter, one I've thought about preaching through uh, for quite a long time, just haven't fitted into the schedule yet. There's various themes that run through it, um, and among them are these. There's a great emphasis in John's first letter, not to love the world. The world is passing away, and so love God, love the Father instead. Beware, says John, of the many antichrists that have come and will come. And don't be surprised that the world hates you. Test the spirits that arise and call to you for your allegiance and your belief, because the world is full of false spirits and false prophets. True prophets, says John, the true spirit, the true Holy Spirit, leads to confession that Jesus Christ has come from God. And those who believe that believe the testimony about Jesus and they obey his commandments. These are themes that weave in and out of John's first letter. There's a conflict that he portrays between light and darkness and between love and hate, between belief and unbelief, between false spirits and the Holy Spirit, between false prophets and true prophets, between Christ and Antichrist, and between believers and the world. But then there's the great promise that he concludes this letter with, that believers overcome the world. That's John's declaration in chapter 5, verse 4. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Everyone born of God. He's talking here about the new birth that is ours in Christ, regeneration, being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. What that does is it identifies God as the source of victory because it's God who gives the new birth, the one who creates life in his people. And it points our attention immediately away from those who make promises to the one who keeps his promises. to look for and to strive for victory only in and through God. Victory is for those born again, and only for those born again, with the new birth that comes from God himself. The verse goes on to say, and this is the victory that overcame, that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is victory. That's an interesting statement. That's a very interesting claim. You know, when, when military leaders are planning about whether or not to go to war, one of the questions they have to ask, or they should ask, we could argue that they haven't asked it well in the past in some cases, but one of the questions they ought to be asking is, what does victory look like? And how do we get there? Is it occupying territory? Is it killing the opposing leader? Is it just getting them to surrender? What does victory look like? And what John is telling us is that for the Christian, victory looks very simple. Victory looks like faith. Your faith in Jesus, your belief in him as your Savior, is itself victory. And it's victory over the world. John is using a wonderful alliteration here that doesn't come through in English. But, you know, the company Nike, the sport, sporting goods company, chose a great name for the company. Nike means victory. And Phil Knight wanted 
his shoes and his apparel on, on, on winning athletes so that when people saw them win, they could see, ah, there's Nike, there's victory in by his stuff. John is using the, the, the Greek from where we get that term Nike. And he's saying something along the lines of, um, this is the Nike that Nikes the world. <laughs> Faith. Not a pair of shoes. Faith. Your faith is victory. Why is that victory? Well, because if you think about it, that's what the world is trying to prevent. Satan doesn't want us to have faith. The world doesn't want us to have faith. The world doesn't want us to live by faith because they hate what is in God's word. And so the world's going to tempt us with other solutions, other options. Look at this great philosophy. Look at this great political theory. Look at this way of thinking about economics. Be popular. Have a lot of stuff. Have a lot of money. Have a lot of influence. Have a lot of power. Be somebody. Have followers. But these are the kinds of false spirits and false prophets that John is talking about that would lure us and tempt us away from simple repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. To put it in the context of recent events, being pro-police or being anti-police is not going to save you. It's not going to save this country. It's not going to save any country. Police are killing people, and police are being killed. I read a column by someone who is pro-police, whose father was a New York policeman, and he related this story, or this saying that his father used to say. This is coming from a guy who's pro-police. He said, my father used to say this, there are 250,000 great policemen in the New York City Police Department. Problem is, there's 350,000 police officers. There's bad eggs. There always have been, and there always will be. This problem existed 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Galilee. What's the answer? What do we do? Repent and believe, or you also are going to perish. Who is the one who overcomes all this nonsense, all this trial, all this difficulty, all this conflict? Who overcomes all this grabbing for power and for influence? Verse 5 tells us, who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is this who gains victory over the world? Except the one who believes in Jesus. And you might think, well, how is that victory? Let me just throw out a few quick examples. It's victory because it brings true peace, not a fake peace or a false peace. Because it brings peace with God and it brings peace with each other. It's only in Christ that the walls of hostility between angry, bitter, bigoted, divisive, hateful people is broken down. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. And who did Christ count among his followers? (laughs) Pharisees, religious leaders of the people, zealots, abandoned who they were and laid it down to follow him. 
what unites people across any difference? It's only Christ. It's a victory because it brings true peace. It's a victory because it brings true life. To steal a little bit from a popular book and TV series, death is coming. Not winter, death. But for those who believe, resurrection and life and life eternal. The world around us wants power. But in Christ we have true power. Power to rise again at the last day. Power to rule and reign with Christ. Power over sin. What did we sing earlier today? He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's power. That's power. To break the power of sin, to have victory over death itself. And it is victory now because it is a victory that has overcome the world, it says in verse 4. It's Christians who model what it means to live as Christians. And it live as an example to the world around us. But it's also a final victory that is coming when Christ comes again. And as we are promised, all of his enemies are made his footstool. The day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. So that's just a brief overview of 4 and 5, but let me close with some thoughts here. For those who have faith in Christ, for those who have repented from their sin and turned to him, believing in him, believing in the Father who sent him, it changes our thoughts, it changes our priorities to other more important things. And so we can do what John calls us to do, to obey his commands to do what we're called to elsewhere, to think his thoughts after him. And that, I believe, has an impact on the world around us and relates to the things that are going around us in in some some interesting ways. First, and I want to say this at the beginning, it doesn't mean we as Christians don't have opinions about things. And it doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world. It doesn't mean that we become mealy-mouthed moderates who take the the middle-of-the-road position on every issue just to spite the partisans on both sides. That's not wise or effective. We don't become relativists who wimp out and refuse to stand for truth where truth lies and just say, well, both sides are right, both sides are wrong. Let's have peace. That's, That's phony. That makes no sense. God is truth. There's Pilate's answer. So all those who are God's people, all those who are followers of Christ, who have the Spirit living in us, empowering us and molding us into the image of Christ, have an obligation to pursue truth. And that's really the key, to pursue truth. The partisans do not pursue truth. They don't. They pursue victory. And they lie. And they cheat. And they manipulate data and statistics to try to convince you that their side is right. <clears throat> to side with them. Don't get sucked into it. Don't get sucked in. 
I took three statistics classes in college and hated every minute of it. And had at least two classes where we applied statistics. And another one in grad school. Statistics are easy to manipulate. Don't believe them. Just don't. Until you investigate it and figure it out for yourself. Because the same statistics, I'm telling you, the same data is being used by both sides to portray the other one as wrong and them right. And it just depends on how they interpret it, how they color it, how they portray it. So be cautious. John calls us in chapter 4, verse 1 of this letter to test the spirits, test things. Be patient, be prudent in your judgment, but see truth wherever it is. And acknowledge it, even if it's not on your side. I think if we as as believers were more careful, were more cautious, were more circumspect in our public statements about events, then people would respect us more and seek out our judgment more. Even though the partisans will hate us, others will recognize the wisdom and, and caution that we bring to these things. We don't do that, though. I get, I get emails from family and friends. Read this article. Oh, look at how this portrays so-and-so as a negative, terrible, horrible person. And you read it, and it's a bunch of gobbledygook. It's a bunch of nonsense. You, you can disprove the, the so-called facts by 30 seconds of research on the Internet. And yet people forward these things because it supports their own agenda supports their own preconceived ideas about who is right and who is wrong. Christians should not do that. It stains our reputation. We are supposed to be representatives of a wise and holy God who is the definition of truth. We hurt ourselves when we do stupid things like this. We shouldn't do it. If we can have some measure of understanding by those around us that we are those who pursue truth, I think they will actually come to us and seek our advice and our wisdom in times of turbulence and trouble. But I can tell you the last people they are talking to right now is the church. Because they see us as part of the problem, not part of the search for wisdom and truth. Well, if we're going to pursue truth, our standard for truth has to be God's word. Our primary source for judging what is going on in the world has to be Scripture. It has to be. The elites, the ruling class, those who are striving for power and your support of their pursuit of that power are going to roll out all sorts of claims, all sorts of data, all sorts of statistics, again, that are (coughs) contrived and altered and manipulated to say what they want them to say. You know, when we know this, we call it spin, because it is spin. They're called talking points because (laughs) let's all get on the same page and say the same thing, because if we say it often enough, people will believe it to be true. It's lying is what it is, and we fall for it. Don't believe every story that supports your side. Instead, judge things by the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about how we should treat people? About how we should live together? About how we should react to things? How do we apply the Ten Commandments in a meaningful way to life around us? 
How does God's law given to Israel, even if it's not to be used today for making laws, depending on your point of view there, but at least it has principles that give us ideas about how we should govern ourselves as a people. Know God's word so that you can winsomely and, and, and capably speak to people about things. What do we say when a, when a black man selling CDs by the side of a, of a convenience store gets shot? Well, I one, I don't know all the facts yet. Two, he was made in the image of God. Someone in the image of God was killed. That should bother us. There should be at least some degree of sorrow and empathy about that. Now, maybe he did threaten the police. Maybe they took justifiable action. But that'll come out in time. Can we not at least mourn with those who mourn? That's what we're called to do. That man was part of someone's family. I don't care how long his arrest record was. Maybe he changed. (laughs) Or maybe at least in that instance he wasn't committing a crime. Be wise, be careful. God can change even the foulest sinner and reverse even the most despicable criminal record and change it. But then use scripture to point people to the larger and more important truth. And that's the one that Jesus pointed the crowd around him to. There is judgment coming. Whoever is wrong in these situations, whether it's the guy pulled over in the car, the guy selling CDs by the side of the road, whatever it might be, whoever is wrong and whoever is right, it's going to come out. There is a day of judgment coming when everything is going to be revealed, says scripture. Everything. Is it going to be laid bare before the judge of all mankind? And at that day, whatever injustices we've seen in the world are going to be corrected and taken care of. And Christ is coming, and he is coming to judge the world. It's a judgment that all of us face, because we have all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Now, you don't have to take every incidence that happens and turn it into a, uh, a moment for evangelism. Those people are pests. Don't be a pest. <laughs> but use the opportunity. You've got the opportunity. Boy, did you hear about what happened? Yeah, I did. That's really sobering. I hope, I hope justice comes out. But I know this, justice is coming. And it's worse than whatever any human can do. Take it as an opportunity to speak to people about the reality that's coming and coming quickly. Point people to the real victory that is theirs by grace and through faith in Christ Jesus. Repenting of their sins and looking and trusting in Him for their salvation. This is the faith that has overcome world. It's the faith that brings true reconciliation, true peace, and true love among those who used to hate each other. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Let me pray for us. Lord God, our Father Almighty, once again, 
just an acknowledgement that the events around us are sobering and they are daunting. Certainly there is great evil and wickedness. And we don't want to be those who are blind to what is right and wrong or blind to truth. We want to be those who stand for truth and for justice and for the right things being done. Uh, But we also want to be those who stand with those against whom injustice has been committed, if that proves to be the case. Help us to be wise in all things. Help us to be wise according to your word. We cannot be wise without your spirit guiding and leading us. And then also empower us to be witnesses to the truth that is in your world, <clears throat> in your word. And indeed, may our faith in some small way be a demonstration of victory over a world that opposes it with all its might. Direct us and lead us by your word, by your spirit, to be followers of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.